This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, February 27th. I'm Lou DeVizio. I hope everyone had a great weekend and stayed safe in those high winds. I know there were some power outages, according to PNM, on their outage map online as of Monday morning. There are only about 200 active outages, so if you lost power, hopefully it didn't last too long. We're hoping that weather won't impact the legislative schedule at the Roundhouse this week. We're expecting more and more action as the end of session approaches. In just about a minute here on the podcast, I'll be updating some of the progress on some bills that we've been covering the last few weeks, but please keep in mind there could be updates or developments throughout the week after this podcast is released. So for that reason, I've been including links to each of the bills discussed here on the podcast in the episode descriptions so that you can track their progress. Also, there's a link to the legislature's website where you can search specific pieces of legislation that you might be interested in yourself. And as always, watch our show Friday nights at 7 o'clock on NMPBS for updates and analysis on the key bills moving through the Roundhouse. For now, let's get to the headlines impacting New Mexicans. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's appointee for Secretary of Indian Affairs is facing backlash over an accusation he committed rape in 2007. Former governor of San Ildefonso Pueblo, James R. Mountain, was appointed earlier this month to oversee the Indian Affairs Department. That includes the state task force that addresses crimes against indigenous women and girls. But a report from the Santa Fe New Mexican has revealed that Mountain was indicted on charges of kidnapping and aggravated battery after his ex-girlfriend accused him of sexual assault. The case was dismissed in 2010 because prosecutors say they didn't have enough evidence for Mountain to stand trial. In an email to the Santa Fe New Mexican, a spokesperson for the governor says Lujan Grisham was aware of the allegations against Mountain, but does not intend to withdraw her nomination. In a statement to New Mexico In-Depth, Mountain says he recognizes how upset community members are as a result of the past allegations and charges, but that isn't enough for advocates of Native American women and girls. We'll be following this story as it develops. Proposal to open New Mexico's primary elections to independent and minor party voters is getting closer to passing the state legislature. The advocacy group New Mexico Open Elections told Dan McKay at the Albuquerque Journal that no open primary bill has ever advanced this far at the Roundhouse. That's after the Senate voted it over to the House last week. The bill is backed by three Democratic legislators and Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. It now faces what could be its biggest obstacle in the House Judiciary Committee which rejected a similar measure earlier this month. A mix of Democrats and Republicans helped push the measure through the full Senate on a 27 to 10 vote. On Saturday, it moved through its first two House committees. Under the current system, New Mexico has a closed primary election. That means that independent and minor party voters, which account for about one in four of registered voters or 325,000 people, cannot participate. Two other bills are headed to the Senate after passing the State House last week, House Bill 7 and House Bill 4. House Bill 7 would guarantee access to reproductive and gender-affirming health care to anyone in the state. That was a campaign promise of the governor's when she earned re-election in November. House Bill 4 would reform elections in several ways, by expanding automatic voter registration, allowing convicted felons to vote, creating a voluntary permanent absentee voter list, and enacting the Native American Voting Rights Act. Both House Bill 7 and House Bill 4 now advance to the Senate. Also last week, the House Taxation and Revenue Committee voted to table a bill that would increase alcohol taxes by 25 cents per drink. 
The chair of the committee, State Representative Derek Lente, says that they still have to wait to see if a compromise can be reached. A bill that would modernize the state's Oil and Gas Act by considering the impacts on the environment and disadvantaged communities will go before the Senate Conservation Committee this week. Senate Bill 418 will amend the Oil and Gas Act of 1935, which serves as the main regulation mechanism for New Mexico's fossil fuel industry. This bill would address climate change and pollution that brings negative health impacts, with a specific focus on fossil fuel operations near neighborhoods, schools, and businesses. Recent research published by the Santa Fe New Mexican shows the state's biggest polluters disproportionately impact communities of color. This is the latest effort to increase supervision of an industry that is extracting fossil fuels at an all-time high. Right now, oil and gas is providing about one-third of the state's tax revenue. New Mexico and Focus political correspondent Gwyneth Doland was in Santa Fe at the Roundhouse this past week to ask our lawmakers about some of the good governance bills moving through the legislature. Those include modernization bills to give lawmakers more time and compensation to get their work done, and a bill that I mentioned just a minute ago about open primaries. In order, you'll hear Gwyneth talk with three lawmakers. First, it's State Representative Natalie Figueroa, a Democrat representing District 30 in Albuquerque. Then it's State Senator Greg Schmides, a Republican representing District 19 in Tejeras. And Gwyneth ends the segment speaking with State Senator Bill O'Neill, a Democrat representing District 13 in Los Ranchos to Albuquerque. Here's Gwyneth. Representative Figueroa, thank you so much for talking to us on this Ash Wednesday. You are sponsoring some measures that attempt to professionalize government in a few different ways. One of them, modernizing the legislature. What's the goal here? The end goal in several of the modernization measures is to make us more efficient and more inclusive and allow us to do the work that the people of New Mexico need us to do. And you're not doing that now? <laughs> we are attempting to do that now in the framework that we have, but adjustments can be made to make it more efficient. And these are things we have not looked at in many, many years. The length of the session, for example, has not been changed since the 1960s. And if you think about how different the world is, Medicare hadn't been invented. Um, our whole health system in terms of science and distribution and affordability has drastically changed, even in the last 20 years, much less compared to 1960. So the complexity of the issues we are debating and making policy about demand more time. Are we talking full time or? Well, House, Bill, House Joint Resolution 2 proposes that we extend the session to be instead of 60 and then the next year 30 days, that it is 60 days each year. So we have that additional 30 days to debate and to deliberate. Does that mean that in uh, even numbered years you would only be looking at the budget for 60 days? No, it would mean in that even numbered year it would be open and not limited to the budget. So, you know, I think people say sometimes spending more time on this isn't going to make this any better. What, why do we need uh, more time in the session? I mean, can't you get it done in 30 days every other year? Well, <clears throat> there are arguments pro and con, but I would, I would posit that 
time is one of the parameters that limit the thoughtfulness of our debate and the depth of our research and our ability to hear from our constituents because we have so little turnaround time. We need to know what they want from us and 60 days gives them a broader window to read the bills and to give us feedback. So there's another measure that would um, go to the voters, ask them to approve a commission to set salaries for lawmakers. We've been talking about this for a long time, right? So why do we need to pay lawmakers? Why do you think so? Well, every time I have a town hall, at least one of my constituents says, when are we gonna pay our legislators? They see it as a way for us to be more accountable to them. If we're paid, they can ask more of us. And that's reasonable. They know right now we're volunteers. They know that between nine to five, there are some of us they can't reach for 10 months of the year. And they want us more accessible to them. Mm -hmm. um, and they want us to be able to do a better job. The other piece that might actually be just as important, if not more, is that if we're paid, we can include more voices. There are whole swaths of people, working class people, who can't consider running for the legislature. Their voices are not heard here because there is no salary here. And if we want to bring those voices in, we have to find a way to pay a salary. Now the third measure that we're looking at has to do with school boards and campaign finance. What do you want to do? Uh, the, shine a light on school board practices. Uh, most of our school boards across this state, and there are 80, 89 of them, are doing fabulous, amazing work. But there are a couple issues we could tweak. One, for example, is campaign contributions. As, as the world of money in politics has changed, we need to illuminate even more. Um, where the money comes from. And right now, only four school districts in the state are large enough. Actually, Santa Fe just shrank in enrollment. So only three are large enough to meet the criteria that requires campaign finance reports. There's an exclusion that says if your district is smaller than 12,000, you don't have to report. So we wanna eliminate that because every New Mexican deserves to see where money is coming from in their candidates' campaigns. Senator Schmadies, thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, you're welcome, Gwyneth. You are facing some heavy opposition to some uh, good government bills that you are supporting this session. One of them would um, open the primaries. And this is different from some other proposals we've seen. How does yours work? Well, mine creates a fully open primary. So regardless of your political registration status, you get to show up and they say, what ballot do you want? Do you want a Republican primary? Do you want a Democrat primary? Here you go. Your registration status really doesn't matter. Now, we have heard opposition saying, you know, people need to get involved with the party. They have to show that they are devoted, that they are involved. What do you say to that? Well, I'd say these are the people that have created this monopoly or duopoly in American politics, right? So, so a lot of people in the middle feel boxed out. They feel disenfranchised and disillusioned from our are just two-party form of, of government, right? And so they say hop on board with our way of doing things, and that's not what people want to do. So, you know, for example, this would allow Democrats to vote in your primary election. Are you worried about them coming in and voting for a candidate who's much more liberal than you? No, not at all. Um, you know, I, I don't have that worry. I think it uh, has the potential to even moderate things. Um, and I, I don't see a, a widespread, 
you know, concerted effort to do those things. If someone really wants to give up their opportunity to vote in a Democrat primary in, to vote Republican, well, let them do that. You're also um, asking to see more information from lobbyists mm -hmm. about what they're up to. What do you want to do? Uh, well, we have two bills to just blow the door wide open in politics here. It would be amazing. Um, so the first bill would require lobbyists to disclose which specific piece of legislation they're lobbying for or against. The second bill would also require them not only to disclose that information, but how much money they're being paid to either push a certain bill or to kill a piece of legislation. Now, I'm sure some of the, you know, uh, opposition to this is that it's too complicated. It's too difficult to figure out, you know, to, to report that. It, does it have to be in real time? Um, it would have to be before the close of the session. Um, and and it's, it's not difficult. The Secretary of State's office already has all this software to track all of our financial things and all those matters. So it's really not too much of a lift, I don't think. Wouldn't this just allow you to say, oh, I see what, um, you know, what uh, the, this is, uh, the oil and gas lobby is lobbying for? I'm just going to say yes, 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 right down the list. It would help legislators know where the special interest is. Is it out of state? Is it in state? Which industries are pushing it? Which industries are against it? And it would allow the public to know. I mean, it, it would be great, I think. Senator O'Neill, thank you so much for talking to us today. My pleasure, Gwyneth. You have been a supporter of open primaries for at least a decade. Yes. Right? You have a bill that would open primaries up a little bit, um, and it passed the Senate. Now it goes to the House. What is your prognostication? Okay. Even though we had this amazing vote in the Senate, 28 to 10, bipartisan, just a very interesting uh, uh, who was with who and who was against with who, you know. Um, the, the House ha historically recently just not really liked this bill very much, so we have a real challenge to get it through the House. But I'm very proud of the fact that we got it through the Senate. I had people texting me uh, saying congratulations, this is historic, and so forth. So I think the time has come. Look, the deal is, what are we afraid of? The people will actually vote? Oh my God, gee whiz. You know, honestly, everybody knows the DTS voters, the younger folks, they don't get out of college and go, I am a Republican, oh, I'm a Democrat. No, they tend to avoid that label and they register as independents, not just younger people. I'm, I'm told that um, army veterans, uh, veterans are, are like 50% of them are independents. I mean, it, how many people do you know that are independents and they're shut out of our primaries. And in these days of quite uh, extreme, well, lack of competitive districts, the primary is even more important than it is, has been. So these folks are engaged, they want to participate. So my bill is simply acknowledging and respecting their affiliation as independents so they can walk into a polling place and vote for a Republican or a Democrat. And, and incredibly, the world's not going to end. Thanks, Gwyneth. And thank you to all the lawmakers who made time for us over the past several weeks. After hearing from those legislators, we wanted to get reaction to some of those proposals from our line opinion panelists. On the panel this week, it was Merritt Allen from Vox Optima Public Relations, Dave Mulryan, president and co-founder of Mulryan Nash Advertising, and Andy Lyman, reporter at the Santa Fe Reporter. Here's Gene Grant. 
A bill championed by advocates for transparency in government ethics complaints narrowly passed the House last week. That was House Bill 169 would update the state's current law that requires those who file ethics complaints against lawmakers to stay quiet about their claims when the legislature is not in session. If this bill were passed, those accusers would be able to speak out about their claims. And Andy Lyman has been covering this for an ongoing story for the Santa Fe Reporter with a recent headline referring to the bill as a free speech paradox. Andy, you know this bill has been contentious. Why has this bill seen such a fiery response both in favor and, of course, against from both parties, actually. It's a real mix of people yeah, it seems who to like be and that, dislike. It seems to be that the big concern for lawmakers is what happens when somebody files a frivolous ethics complaint mm. against you. Mm -hmm. What does that do for mailers? What does that do? And, of course, I, I would argue that that that's happens whether or not the, that, that this, this uh, complainant gets to speak out or not. Mm -hmm. um, but that's definitely sort of the unifying aspect for people voting against this. And again, it's, it's bipartisan. I think there was eight Democrats that voted against it um, and right. four Republicans that voted for it. So there is sort of a, a crossover there. Right. Uh, David, interesting proponents of this bill said it would allow complainant, complainants not only to speak to their media about their complaints, but also to family members and friends, as well as medical professionals, such as counselors, therapists. It's this element being overlooked by those who oppose the bill. You heard Andy uh, mention there's a I lot mean, of both sides who yeah, support and I think oppose. A lot of it is, you know, it, it gets really technical. Mm -hmm. I very much believe in if you have a complaint of, an, of a legislature that did something really egregious, you know, take it to the voter, you know, okay. <laughs> like that, yeah. that solves the problem, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, more than anything, I, I just think these ethics things are, again, window dressing. I'm not sure how effective they are. I mean, what ultimately, you know, we, we have an uh, you know, example of what's going on with the Congressman Santos, mm -hmm. Cantos, whatever, and, mm -hmm. you know, egregious, and there's really nothing you can do. I mean, there's no way to get right. rid of him from it. Right. It's up to the voters that voted him in. That's right. And I think in, I'm a great believer in the ability of the voter to decide to figure out what should be done here. Mm -hmm. I'll just add real quick in there yeah. on, on that point. Um, ironically, a complainant has <coughs> more freedom to say what you're talking about before they file the ethics complaint, right? Isn't that so, interesting? Yeah, right. yeah. yeah, something yeah. about that. So yeah. Interesting. Uh, ethics uh, complaint last year filed against uh, Senator Daniel Ivey Soto. Got to bring this up. Uh, Mariana uh, Anaya, of course, was the lobbyist who accused Mr. Ivy Soto of sexual harassment and assault. Interesting, Andy, you reported uh, Mr. Ivy Soto supports this bill. <laughs> it's interesting there. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the, the cross currents as you see them here. Does this solve anything as far as you, you're concerned, or is this more of the same? Or Well, I, I, I think ethics legislation in New Mexico is always going to be a challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, it was difficult enough to establish uh, the Ethics Commission. That was, you know, more than 10 years in the making. Mm -hmm. uh, the Ethics Commission is understaffed and underfunded. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, mm -hmm. that's certainly true. I, I believe uh, their uh, annual budget is something like $10 million. Mm -hmm. It's just tiny. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got a staff of six people. I mean, so yeah, so <laughs> particularly when you look at yeah. uh, the endemic corruption that has plagued our state since it was a territory. Right. So right. Uh, the state is truly not serious uh, about eliminating corruption. There's there's that. Go ahead. Sorry. Finish your point. Oh, so I mean to cut you off. So um, with, you know, with regard to uh, last year's case, mm -hmm. that was certainly pointed out. And the you know, the other problem we have is the secrecy of proceedings. 
Um, I think that's a, a much bigger problem. Right. Um, now, allowing the, com uh, the complainant to uh, be able to uh, speak out, I think that's important because mm -hmm. uh, it's not always wise to speak to the media. I mm -hmm. mean, certainly if you have counsel, your counsel may advise mm -hmm. you against that. You may decide, hey, I'm going to wait and let this be adjudicated. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to uh, uh, speak out. If you're a frivolous uh, uh, filer, you're going to do what you want anyway, that's and right. that's and legislation is not going to change that's that. Right. That's right. I mean, uh, I, so I, I don't think that's really something to worry about in the case of this legislation. I think the bigger worry, and that's not really addressed here, is the secrecy that still mm. uh, exists with regard to someone filing an ethics complaint. We don't know right. what happens. Uh, right. It's always in closed session. We don't know what happens uh, in in the chamber with the ethics with uh, the House or the Senate Ethics Committee who investigates the claim, mm -hmm. uh, complaints about themselves and makes a decision. We never know what happens with that. That's right. That's got to change. Just a reminder, Ms. Anaya was not allowed to speak about this, but Mr. Ivy Soto went out there and just did a media hit, Dave, and just could, could say whatever he wanted to put Ms. Anaya and anybody in her position in a fantastically difficult right. position here. Well, those who make the rules rule, right? There you go. And, and yep. so there's no question. But yep. I do think, you know, this whole idea that, again, we're setting up more committees, we're setting up more things. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, maybe would be better off if we went back and made the, you know, the ethics gave them a bigger budget and sort of took what we have, mm -hmm. fixed it, made it more effective, and see. But, but I will also tell you, I think one thing that politicians understand and a lot of their advisors understand, you know, unless it's something fantastical that they're walking out of a room with a bag full of cash that's spilling mm -hmm. over or is in a clear container, mm -hmm. most, most citizens and most voters just aren't that interested, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's what it comes down to. It's Regrettably. Like you know, interesting, Andy, uh, Representative James Townsend, Republican Artesia, told his colleagues he's lost trust in the state's ethics commission. I mean, when people like Mr. Townsend are losing, you know, faith, maybe we should take a hard look. But a lot of Republicans have been saying that for a long time. But I got to shift the focus here a little bit. Uh, to a bill that would allow unaffiliated party voters to participate in open primary elections, which passed the Senate this week. It's very interesting. Uh, Jerry Ortiz, Senator Jerry Ortiz Pino spoke out against the bill. I'm not quite sure why, but uh, interesting. Um, he's a, well, he's a hard partisan for his party, and, and that's okay. We've had this up for debate previously in our set. Is there something a little extra happening here where something could actually happen, more open government uh, I, I, you know, Open per, voting I guess type bills? personally, mm -hmm. as a declined to state voter myself, I would hope so, right? Mm -hmm. um, that that I would, um, I, I guess I, I should say my feelings aren't completely hurt when I don't get to vote in primaries, but it right. is, it would be nice to be included. Yeah. Um, but I've also been watching this happen over and over and over again. Maybe it's an incremental shift. Mm -hmm. um, I, I seem to, to remember that our, our current Secretary of State is not opposed to these things mm -hmm. and says we could we could do mm -hmm. it. There's also the concerns about logistics, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do, how do we run primaries? But I think it's a pretty simple solution. I think yeah. you look at Texas where they just print ballots for anybody right. and they That's show right. up. That's know. right. That's interesting how that, but I gotta ask you, Merritt, on this one, uh, Mr. Ortiz Pino, um, you know, Primary sh elections should be for voters who have already made, quote, a deeper commitment by choosing a party. 
I mean, I love Jerry, and that's a, a quaint thought from like 20 years ago, but we've moved on past that, haven't we? Independents now want to say in these things in well, a primary. And I find that so surprising because he's such an advocate for truly independent redistricting. Yeah. So I found that surprising coming from Senator Ortiz Pino. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that said, to me, it's that our elections are funded by taxpayers. Uh -huh and telling 300,000 voters in New Mexico, or almost a quarter of our registered voters in New Mexico, mm -hmm. you can't vote in publicly funded primaries, that's just wrong. Right, right, interesting. David, a proposal to create an independent redistricting commission was tabled Monday. Yes. It's interesting, how yes. I wanna ask Andy about this too, this is so interesting to me. All the Durbin storm about this, we had all this agita going into the session because nobody liked how we right. you know, did the whole thing and now it's just eh. It's dead. Yeah, right. right. It's not happening. That's right. I, I mean, you know. Are you surprised? I don't know. I mean, you know, everybody seemed like mm -hmm. what happened happened. I mean, basically all of this, you know, everybody, you know, saying, oh, what we did to, you know, the district down south. I always get it confused. Is it two or three or mm -hmm. whatever? Two two, you know, caused it to flip. I'm not sure that's true. It was a very narrow margin mm -hmm. within the margin of it flipping before redistricting. And I, I just, I don't see it, you know. I don't see that they're gonna get it through. They yeah. tabled it, it's over. We have no court cases pending or do we? I don't know. Both Republicans and Democrats near unanimous voted it down. I mean, it wasn't yeah. even close. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's... I have no idea. I mean, I would, yeah. I would be completely guessing on, on exactly why. Mm -hmm. um, and again, there's, you know, some transparency issues peppered in there of, you know, where, where their interests coming from. Right. Um, I, I think it's going to be, no one's ever going to be happy with how we redistrict. Everyone's going to be mad about the outcome. Right. Um, but again, I, I do, you, I'm, I'm with you on that, looking at them and saying why you had an option to, <laughs> you know, That's right. yeah. That's right. I just want to make this point Please. about both of these things, redistricting and, you know, the whole idea of party affiliation and voting. The politicians and the parties tend to be able to say, we want to do this, but they're messing with the process. They're not saying what's really important, which is get out and vote, you know, register and vote. Mm -hmm. That solves so many of the problems, you know, because mm -hmm. we get good representation. You know, you just so rarely hear them saying, like, I want, I want, you to vote, you know, which is the most important thing that I think. Well, what's interesting is the mood on the House Judiciary, Judiciary Committee is just very interesting this year because uh, the open primaries bill was also heard in House Judiciary. There was a mm -hmm. House bill and a Senate bill, mm -hmm. and House Judiciary killed it. Isn't that interesting? So, yeah. you know, it was a decade ago. Um, Senate rules was where ethics legislation went to die. So now House Judiciary is where good government bills go to die. And I'm laughing, but it's not particularly funny. No, actually, but it, right? it, that's just that's yeah. just how things are in 2023. Exactly. So wow. uh, it, it, and it's uh, I can't make uh, I can't make head or tails of it given the makeup of uh, the House Judiciary Committee, but that seems to be the reality this year. You know, it, it, uh, just still a minute of time here from our guys here. Uh, that, that proposed. Uh, legislation I was talking about with David, would have allowed voters to decide whether the State Ethics Commission should appoint a panel to determine legislative and congressional districts after each sen uh, census. That seems pretty logical. I, I don't see the downside there. What, what, what am I missing? This is... Well, and what I'm surprised mm -hmm. is how against it Republicans are. Right. Because 
they pretty much have gone through, I don't know how many decades of constant gerrymandering by Democrats. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if we're in for some big um, surprise right. <laughs> in the next seven, next seven years yep. before 2031, mm -hmm. but this would actually give, I think, uh, the Republican caucuses uh, a much more even shot. Right, interesting point there. Boy, well, we can get that census down to something right. sooner, quicker than 10 years we're hitching these things to. It's I difficult. just want to make the point, though. Mm -hmm. There is going to be a big surprise, and it's going to hit both parties. They are daily, you know, not getting people signing up to be a Democrat or being a Republican. They're signing up to be a decline to state. Mm -hmm. 390,000 voters are declined to state. That's with nobody pushing them. They're just, that's what they do. They're not doing it because they want to be a decline to state. They're doing it because they don't want to be a Republican and they don't want to be a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so there's no big surprise coming, but it's coming. That's right. Congratulations one more time to you, Andy, on that story in the Santa Fe Reporter. I'm, I'm loving the fact that you got a hold of that report. <laughs> a lot of folks, electeds, are not happy with you right now, but you're doing your reporter thing, and that's how it goes. Thank you to our line panelists and to you for watching this segment online. Now watch our show Friday nights at 7 o'clock on NMPBS or catch any episodes you might have missed on the PBS app or your Roku or Smart TV. Education is always a major discussion point here in New Mexico as we rank near the bottom of nearly every educational category nationwide. Now, as our leaders try again and again to diagnose the problem, lawmakers in Santa Fe are considering a change to how our statewide educational authority is governed. Let's get right back to Gene and the line. Lawmakers at the Roundhouse are considering a proposal that would bring back a state board of education to New Mexico. Currently, the state has a public education department and a secretary, of course, who was appointed by the governor. The proposed resolution would remove the secretary position and create a 15-member board of education with 10 elected members and five members appointed by the governor. Now, that group of 15 would then hire a state soup or superintendent to lead the public education department. If approved, this would return the state to a public education model. New Mexico held uh, Dave Mulryan for five decades before voters removed the board in 20, uh, 2003. Buyer's remorse here? What's going on here? Why the, why the, the big turnaround? Well, but you know, the, the 50 years had fewer, you know, superintendents or people in charge than the last four years. Isn't so that interesting? Yeah. I think that one of the things that's clear is who's ever been appointed, for whatever reason, it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, you have to pitch it. I mean, you know, you have to say. Mm -hmm. And we have not seen in those four years, or however long this legislation has been here, we have not jumped up. We have right. not, I mean, right. I think we even fell one below Mississippi, if that's, that's right. possible. That's right. You know, we have not improved our education system. So, listen, there should be no remorse about pitching it because it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's mm -hmm. very clear. Merritt, interesting, Dave mentioned uh, we've had uh, three different cabinet secretaries over the past four years plus. You, you gotta have continuity, especially in education and how people kind of see these things. Is this, is this the solution, is it to go I, this way? I really like this. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it also, I think, points back to more local control. Yep. And I think the next reform that New Mexico has to consider is looking at the number of school districts we have. We have 86 school districts and a third of our students are all in one. Right. That makes That's no right. sense. That's right. So we've got tiny, tiny school districts and a mega school district. And so allocating resources equitably that way mm -hmm. just is uh, awkward and 
obviously isn't working well, and our larger school district mm -hmm. is not our top performing school district by a long shot. Isn't that interesting? I want to come back to that as well. That's an interesting point. Uh, Andy, we're 50th in public education. As Dave mentioned, we fell a spot from 49th to 50th. Um, could the argument be made that the uh, change in 2003 was a turning point for the state? Are we looking for a moment to scapegoat here? Because as Dave and, and Merritt mentioned, we've not appreciably done anything better since we went to this 2003 scheme. Yeah, I think it's hard to, I don't, I don't know that mm -hmm. if we, if, I guess some, you could point to that and, and sort, of, um, sort of flesh out whether changes started at that moment. Mm -hmm. I do remember in 2013 this happened, or this, this, there was an attempt here, but it was sort of pointed at uh, former Governor Susana Martinez's um, cabinet secretary, um, right. Hannah Scandera. Right. And I think it's interesting that this is getting some, some more um, traction, sort of bipartisan traction, mm -hmm. considering that before it was like, oh, we just don't like the secretary, we're gonna try to change it up. Right. Um, but at that time too, it was kind of like, hey, remember we just got to this, right? It's, it's sort of, I don't know in the whole scheme of things, we're, we're sort of still new in this cabinet secretary thing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 20 years, I guess, is not that new, but it's sort of um, considering how long it was before that. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's going to be, it's not going away, mm -hmm. right? I think people are going to keep bringing this up even if it doesn't happen this year. Right. People want results, Dave. People they want results. results. Right. But also, you know, um, number one school district in the country, either Massachusetts or New Jersey, they tend to swap, you know? Mm -hmm. They spend. I mean, three or four times what we spend in New Mexico. Although I don't think our budgets are really, you know, that bad. Mm -hmm. it, I think it's a matter of political will. You know, how do we change this and say, mm -hmm. it's like UNM. UNM has a 50% dropout rate. I mean, it's the cornerstone. You know, Eastern New Mexico University, we lose 70% of all people before they graduate. So education starting from the very beginning until, you know, college is lousy. I mean, there's just no other way to put lipstick on that pig. Mm -hmm. And Yeah, Andy, you know, when you, th when you think about it, um, I, I just, I don't understand how we've, we've not made a move on this beforehand. And now we've got this number, we've got 15 different people, but with more people, there's more problems. <laughs> when you've got more ideas. Is that, is that a concern? Uh, you know, not for you personally, but you know, just watching how mechanics of New Mexico politics work. You get a group of people in a room, doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna get better ideas at the end of the day. No, but I, I, I think there, the, there's an argument that you get um, a better thought process, mm -hmm. right? Where it doesn't mm -hmm. end up just uh, one person answering for the decisions. Right. I think there's a bunch of other states. Actually, my uncle um, was on the, the Board of Education in Alaska, same thing, mm -hmm. right? And you sort of, you do get a mix of people in there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think maybe sometimes you might get enough people that it sways one direction, but I do think right. it looks maybe somewhat a little bit better than sure. instead of, you know, the old adage, the buck stops here, which is good for a lot of things. But right. I think, um, if you can't sway that one person's, that being the cabinet secretary, their mind on something, mm -hmm. maybe we do need some, some more folks in there to sort of pitch mm -hmm. some other ideas. Interesting point, Merritt, I want to talk with you about, everybody, I suppose. Um, there is a bill right now that would have members of school boards disclose campaign donations and more importantly, be trained on things like finance and budgeting and things of that nature. I'm interested in your, your, your thought on that. It seems like a really good idea. I, mean, I don't know that the state needs to get involved in local school boards. I'm not, yeah. I'm not uh, a huge fan of that because I don't feel like the state's done a good job mm -hmm. um, at the state level with education. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, 
I, I think local school boards, uh, we, we've had some, I know, uh, some egregious situations with local school boards. Right. And I understand that, but I think that's up to the voters to fix. That's why you have elected school boards. Right. So I right. think the state offering resources that local school boards can take advantage of, mm -hmm. but I think mandating some, I think that's kind of state overreach. That's just, that's my mindset. Yeah. And if, you're, if you feel that your, your local school board member is not uh, trained or fit for the job, then vote them out. Right, right. It's, it's the before or after what Merritt's saying. You've got to have something coming in the door. You can't be just a blank right. sheet well, and get trained also, to be yeah. a, you know. Without a doubt. But also, a politician always looks for some sort of procedure, you know, the election or whatever. How do we help improve that? Because that's going to improve the quality of the politician. I'm not sure that's true, right. but, <laughs> you know, but I think Merritt's point where we have one huge Bernalillo County school system and then all these smaller ones needs to be taken into account, you mm -hmm. know. And I think if we're going to look for a solution, maybe Bernalillo County has its own school sport, you know, mm -hmm. and and the rest of them are grouped together. So there's some amount of parity. I don't know. You know, we need, but but I think we should try things that are new and unusual because whatever we've done hasn't worked. I mean, there's no question. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, does Grant County need two school districts? Right. Yeah. Exactly you know, right. I, I mean, exactly I, I, right. Does, does yeah. that does that make sense? Yeah. Let me go back to this donations thing. I'm kind of interest, interested in this, Andy. Um, you know, it's interesting, currently districts with more than 12,000 students, speaking of size, are required to report donations. And that only applies to four of the state's 89 school districts. Something's bizarre with that. I mean, it should everybody, is it everybody or nobody at this point? What's the best uh, way to handle I, no, that? No, I, I read an interesting take on, you know, um, that, that their donations in those smaller districts don't come the same way that they come for the larger districts. Okay. From what I've seen and covered, I, I think we might be more worried about how those board members got the position in the first place or, or what sort of, um, because you're in those smaller districts, there's, mm -hmm. we have a list of stories. We can go back years of, of you know, a cousin or brother or, mm -hmm. you know, hired a superintendent to, to do things. And um, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't cover the, the smaller districts that much, so I don't know yeah. where the money's coming from. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of lean on that, that I don't know that they're getting a whole bunch of money from from outside interests like you do mm -hmm. in, in Bernalillo County or, or Santa right. Fe County. That's an interesting point. No one's really proved that point to this date, that there's some kind of problem with these donations. I appreciate them trying to get ahead of something before the problem happens. But Merritt, interestingly, uh, the president of the New Mexico School Board Association and a member of the Lovington School Board told the journal that the measure was, quote, punitive. And if you want to know who donates in a small community, go to the post office, go to the coffee shop. It's there. That's a great quote, first of all. Is she right? I, yeah. I, would, I would absolutely <laughs> agree with that. I mean, yeah. I just I don't see where the Colfax County, um, <laughs> uh, you know, d digging deep into Colfax County school board donations right. is going to give you a smoking gun. Right. Right. Um, I, I don't, and it's just mm -hmm. simply a, a matter of uh, uh, going to Walmart and finding out. Oh, they, right. I don't think they have a Walmart in Colfax County. Yeah, you have not. to go, yeah, yeah, probably Lovington County. Exactly. You go, right you go border, yeah, right. yeah, <laughs> going, uh, but going to Walmart, you would. Yes, exactly <laughs> in Lovington. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> David, is this a hammer to kill a fly, as they say? I mean, the president of the board said, the school board said it's punitive. I'm not quite yes. sure what she means and by you that. Know, but, maybe, maybe, you know. but but also I think it's. 
it's a solution in search of a problem. You know, I don't mm -hmm. think that bad school performance is somehow related to donations. I don't, that, I don't, that seems like to me a bit of a disconnect. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we need to be looking at what can we do to improve our schools from the bottom up? And, you know, everything from teachers and, and, and I don't know, and I think it's a lack of it's leadership. Yeah, That's right. it's a lack of leadership from, you know, from state legislators, from school boards, from right. the governor, from everybody. Because if we don't fix this problem, then where are we going? You know, right. are we, right. like, are we happy to stay 50th? The future of New Mexico you're talking about. Right. Exactly you right. Know. Yep. Thank you to Jean and our line opinion panelists. In their third discussion for the week, our panelists talk through the changes at the state's Children, Youth, and Families Department and whether or not they'll be effective in protecting New Mexico's most vulnerable children. You can watch that online right now on the New Mexico in Focus YouTube page. Now, I want to shift our attention to another government setting the groundwork for the year ahead. The Navajo Nation has welcomed a new leader. Dr. Boo Nigren has passed the 30-day mark in his first year of office as president of the tribe that spans parts of Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. It's the largest reservation in the country, and that's no small task for the youngest president in the history of the tribe. Dr. Nigren ran on a number of campaign promises, including lifting COVID-19 restrictions and fully reopening the Navajo Nation. New Mexico and Focus correspondent Antonia Gonzalez caught up with him to ask about that action and what he's learned in his short time leading the tribe. President Nigren, thank you for joining me. Yes, it's an honor to be here with you. And last time we spoke, you were at a flea market um, campaigning on the campaign trail. Now you're back at it on the move, but now you're president of the Navajo Nation. How's it going so far? I am 38 days on the job, end of today, and it's been super exciting. It's been everything that I wish uh, I've, I've dreamed about being as president because you get to lead the Navajo Nation in a way that you set the pace for the future of our, of our nation. So the past 38 days, I've done, I've done a lot of traveling. I've met with a lot of leaders. I've met with all three governors, Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah governors, all the, the, the state senators, the state representatives, the, the U.S. representatives and uh, uh, U.S. senators as well from all the three states as well, too. So it's been it's been an exciting uh, couple of weeks and also at the same time really maintaining what I promised my campaign was about was working with the Navajo Nation Council and making sure that I am in communication with them and doing my best to make sure I align myself with them as far as priorities. So anything that I talk about or present about, I'm, I've been very transparent about getting that information back over to the Navajo Nation Council as well. And I promised I'd have coffee with them. So the past uh, this past week has been very uh, inviting. So I've had multiple coffee uh, coffee meetings with various uh, Navajo Nation Council delegates as well, just going over priorities and goals and things for their communities as well. And the other thing um, I also did was my first week to Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago, I was actually the guest of Senator Mark Kelly at the State of the Union. So that was uh, pretty exciting coming from uh, a place where I've never been to Washington, D.C. I think the last time I was there, I believe I was in high school. So this time around, it was exciting to visit, uh, go to the State of the Union, 
also be invited for a meeting inside the White House. So that was all uh, everything that uh, I've been thinking about. Uh, one of the things that we did do is make sure that um, we lift the mask mandate because I felt like it was about time. All the surrounding communities have reopened. All the surrounding cities have reopened. And we just took uh, precautionary and made it optional for people to wear masks. And also the other thing I've also done too was uh, an executive order issued, uh, I think it was two days ago to try to streamline some of the processes. I know off the reservation travel because a lot of our CHR programs, our social service programs, a lot of them still have to submit travel requests to go to nearby uh, cities to take some of the some of our clients. And that goes all the way to the president's level. And sometimes I look at travel requests and it's a couple of a couple of days old or a couple of weeks old. So I wanted to make sure that division directors can handle that at that level instead of having to go all the way to the president. So a lot of things like that. And I've signed two legislations so far. One was for uh, uh, emergency response with the storms that have come in to make sure that we replenish uh, um, uh, at the chapter level to make sure they do have some emergency funding. The second one I signed was for some fire trucks and ambulances. So it's been an exciting uh, couple of weeks, very very action-packed, and the, the theme of all my visits has always been the same, roads, water, broadband, better public safety, and jobs. And as you put together your administration, um, you appointed a, a many Navajo women, including your vice president, and even in the tribal council, there's a historic number of Navajo women serving on the tribal council. So why is it important to you for Navajo women to be part of the government leadership? That's been a, for some reason, it's, they've all worked out the way I thought it was because I look at everything based on competency, compassion, and teamwork, and everybody that has come to the top have always, have most of them have been female, and even my new uh, veterans uh, director is female. She's, her name is Bobby, so she's going to be officially taking uh, the helm at the Veterans Administration for Navajo on the 27th. So that was another big win. And yes, definitely my cabinet is made up of some pretty strong Navajo women. And I believe that they're more than capable and they've kept my balance. Even my chief legal counsel is a strong, independent woman too as well. So it's uh, just, I think it's just my belief in, in just making sure the best people are in place. And at this moment in time, those types of people are in those positions. Because the reason why I really have pushed uh, the most qualified people is just because there's uh, over a billion dollars worth of projects, the ARPA projects and Shehashen uh, projects that are that have been on the books for a long time. And we have a time, short timeline to get those dollars spent. So right now, my teams are very focused on coming up with creative ways to spend those dollars and some of those uh, issues that have come up my way, I've definitely relayed that back to Secretary Holland that we re we really need help streamlining some of the um, the requirements to get some of these infrastructure and essential projects completed. So we're constantly in contact with them because I know everybody construction season is upon us. So we want to try to get dollars out there so people can have some jobs for the summer and into the fall. And you mentioned a lot, a lot of work that's going on, including getting that um, American Rescue Plan funding spent by the tribe. Um, what is one of your next upcoming goals or plans as 
you move forward in, as president of the Navajo Nation? I think my main focus, um, not only is it um, getting those dollars, but something internally that's been a, a big struggle is hiring and getting people through the tribal bureaucracy to get somebody hired because there's uh, scenarios where it takes someone two to three months to get hired on the Navajo Nation. By the time they're waiting on getting hired, they find a brand new job and opportunities leave like that. So my main focus is to try to, the goals I've set for all division directors is we need to come up with uh, solutions to get somebody hired within two weeks, just like the way the outside does it, or even outside governments get people hired within two weeks. We should have that same set of standards. Also, the other thing that I've, I've, I've tasked my people, my, my team on is making sure that um, people, uh, people have the right salaries too, because sometimes it actually costs more to live on the reservation because commuting from an hour or two hours and the places that you have to go to get the basic things you need. Um, sometimes people think it's a lot cheaper to live on, to live home, but sometimes it's actually a lot more expensive. So doing a lot of those salary adjustments as well too is one of my focus. And at the same time, housing has been uh, a big forefront for trying to recruit people. So I'm definitely trying to um, uh, task my teams to uh, housing opportunities uh, for medium income uh, types of jobs. So I'm looking forward to approaching the Navajo Nation Council on some housing development projects for employees, even if even if it's just a studio. I think a lot of people would appreciate that. Well, and before I let you go, I know you're busy and on your way to more meetings, um, but you you're one of you are the one of the youngest presidents, if not the youngest president of the Navajo Nation. Is that correct? I am the youngest president in Navajo history. And I think the other cool fact that I've kind of come to learn too is I'm the last, uh, it's been a, about 188 years since we had a Utah born Navajo raised uh, person to lead the Navajo Nation. The last person was Chief Manuelito. So that's pretty cool, cool to think about because there's actually a photo of him in my office. And I think, man, it took 188 years for a, a Utah born to come back into this office and lead the people. Well, with that, just um, any closing words for the younger generation who, you know, are leaders now, there are a lot of young Navajo people who are doing great things on and off the reservation. So any words to our young Navajo people out there? I think that my, my number one thing is continue to believe that you can make a difference and come home to help our people in our communities. Because I think that there was times when people ask me, Boo, how is a construction guy ever going to come back? to the Navajo Nation and lead our people and be president of the Navajo Nation. And, and deep down in my heart, I knew that my skill set and my belief and commitment to try to help was going to find a way and a path to be president. And I feel like if I'm if you're listening, don't let someone hold you down or tell you otherwise. As long as you yourself are centered and believe in the in the mission that you can help our communities keep that going and move along because some uh, like myself I come from a very small community of Red Mesa and and I'm now the president of the Navajo Nation so you can definitely get it done so yeah well, thank you President Boo Nigren for joining me today all right I'm going it
Thank you, Antonia, Gwyneth, Jean, and everyone else who contributed to our show and the podcast this week. We'll be tracking progress in the Roundhouse over the next few weeks, so stay with New Mexico in focus through all of our social media pages. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll be posting updates and other news items leading up to our show. That's Friday night at 7 o'clock on NMPBS. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, February 27th, 2023. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.